Are you an adventurer looking to take your hunt to the next level? Then you're in the right place. Welcome to East Meets West Hunt with your host, Bo Martonic. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the East Meets West Hunt podcast presented by Spartan Forge. On today's episode, I am joined by Chad Sylvester of Exodus Trail Cameras, and Chad has a ton of experience hunting and running trail cameras in the big woods. So we discuss his giant Kansas buck from this past season, lessons learned from hunting a specific deer, annual data, trail camera setups in a new area, wind mapping, food sources changing, and much more. 100% born in the Appalachian Mountains and made in the USA, Timber Ninja Outdoors provides a range of mobile hunting options to accommodate diverse hunting preferences. Whether you prioritize comfort, lightweight design, or versatility, their two-panel and single-panel saddles collection has something for everyone. The Black Belt Nano is the lightest single-panel saddle available on the market, weighing in under a pound. The saddle is designed with the minimalist hunter in mind, focusing on lightweight functionality and breathability. One notable feature is the patent-pending magnetic stick clip system on the side, which allows for convenient transportation of sticks up the tree, as well as a built-in platform holder. The Nano Saddle can be folded up to the size of a Nalgene bottle, enabling easy portability. With a four-way stretch material on the back for a comfortable fit, as well as strategically placed padding for hip pinch relief. You can use code EASTMEETSWEST to get free shipping on any Timber Ninja order. If you try it out and don't like it, send it back within 30 days for a full refund. Learn more at TimberNinjaOutdoors.com and sign up for their email newsletter for exclusive discounts and product drops. When it comes to optics, I get the same question over and over again. What are the best all-around binoculars? Well, it's tough to find something that works in every condition great, but after using a pair of Maven B1.2 10x42s, I think I found them. They feature an 8x or a 10x option, superior low light performance, tack sharp edge to edge clarity, a generous depth of field, and a silky focus mechanism. All of Maven Optics have a lifetime no fault warranty and hail from the great state of Wyoming. I've been using Maven Optics since I bought my first pair in 2017, and I think you should test them out for yourself. Head over to mavenbuilt.com and use the code EASTMEETSWEST-GIFT for a free gift with any full price optics order. For all of those that want a truck bed cover for work or play, Diamondback makes the top of the line heavy duty covers that help you do more with your truck. They're perfect for the truck owning, avid sportsmen, outdoor enthusiasts, and weekend project warriors. I'm currently using the HD cover that can is capable of holding up to 1,600 pounds on the top. And then I have the Yakima overhaul HD bars on top so I can put my rooftop tent on it. When I'm not using my rooftop tent and able to use the trifold design of the Diamondback, I have the Crossbin 8 in there to organize all of my stuff in the back of my truck bed. Diamondback is made right here in Phillipsburg, Pennsylvania. If you want to check them out, head over to diamondbackcovers.com. If you've wanted that hunting camp tradition that we talk about, that experience, but you don't have a hunting camp of your own, you're welcome to come stay at my hunting camp up here in the Pennsylvania wilds called the Elk Crossing Getaway in the PA wilds. So if you go over to Airbnb, you can check out our three bedroom, one and a half bath house that's right in the heart of Pennsylvania elk country. 
It's only minutes away for a bunch of public land to be able to hunt, hiking trails, outdoor recreation, fishing, all of those things there. The house is completely fully stocked with everything that you need to be able to, to spend a week hunting deer, taking your family up to see the elk, anything like that. So if you head over to Airbnb and search Elk Cross and Getaway in the PA Wilds, you'll find my listing there and you can rent out my house to send us a message and inquiry that you're interested in it and mention that you heard it on the podcast here, then we'll get you 10% off of your first day. On this week's Mountain Buck Monday story of the week, uh, it comes from Will Coggin out of Virginia. So this story is is a longer one than normal, but I wanted to read through it. It's uh, an, an awesome story here. You can find the, the photo of this deer over on the East Meets West Hunt Instagram page and East Meets West Outdoors on Facebook. So Will said, this is my second year hunting the Blue Ridge Mountains. I wanted to hunt an area near doe bedding, overlooking a food source and potential staging areas, which is also near water. I hunted out of my saddle, playing the wind as best as I could, sitting to the southeast of the doe bedding and food source with a westerly predicted wind. I got in my tree around 1430 and immediately noticed that the winds were swirling and appeared to be taking my scent towards the food source slash expected doe bedding. I contemplated getting down and moving, but decided to stick it out and trust that the thermals would switch as the sun set and begin to pull my scent behind me and down towards the creek. Out of nowhere at 1721, about 70 yards from me, this stud appeared. He must have crossed the creek and come up the hill directly into the wind from the east before I even saw him. I immediately knew this was the largest buck I'd ever seen with my muzzleloader in range and began to take aim without bothering looking at him through the binos first. I took aim, steadied my breathing, and squeezed off an attempted shot with him perfectly broadside to me pop fizz nothing despite having my gun covered up until now the primer failed to ignite the the powder and the buck looked directly at me i froze for what was probably the longest 15 seconds of my life the buck returned to grazing i quickly replaced the primer and took aim again after ranging the buck once again he was 74 yards from me and now quartering away i took a deep breath exhaled half of it and squeezed the trigger this time the round departed the weapon i stayed on my scope and as the smoke cleared i could see the buck running due north he took an awkward step and his tail was down i was confident in my shot but i didn't hear him crash so i decided to put stay out for the next hour and despite having followed my pre-shot process and feeling good about the shot the demons of doubt began to creep into my thoughts Around 40 minutes later, I got an alert saying that moderate rain was about to start until sunset, so I decided to climb down and see if I could pick up a blood trail before dark. Having ranged the deer, I knew exactly where to look, but spent 10 minutes in the area where the buck last stood without finding a drop of blood. I worked my way around the area, circling wider and wider with no avail. I made a last-ditch effort to go about 10 yards further, and then 30 yards away, I could see him sprawled out on the hill. I was absolutely elated and still am. I immediately FaceTimed my dad and shared the experience with him, then thanked him for getting me into the sport. His response, 
well, I'm not sure I gave you much of a choice. <laughs> Such an awesome story and uh, uh, definitely a roller coaster of emotions there from Will. So thanks for sending that in. Send in your mountain buck stories and a photo or two. I'd love to share them. Um, send them in to Bo at eastmeetswesthunt.com. So I announced last week um, that I'd be launching the registration for the mountain buck scouting camp uh, today. And so I just launched that here uh, this evening at 6 p.m. I sent out the email. I, I was hoping to get it done earlier, but uh, didn't get everything done before work after getting back late from Harrisburg uh, last night. And uh, I couldn't believe it. The, the, all of the spots um, for the event sold out in under two and a half minutes. So again, I, I can't believe that, uh, that happened. I'm super thankful for that. And, and I apologize if you weren't able to get a spot, um, definitely going to have to do more of these in the future, but, um, I, I'm just, I'm blown away by the, the response to it. And I'm excited for those of you that did get in to, to get to come and, go through the, the scouting workshop with myself and everybody else. I think it's going to be an incredible event. So everyone that did get a spot, stay tuned. There'll be more information coming um, on on that event. So again, thank you. Thank you for, for uh, doing that and, and believing in it. I think it's going to be an incredible event. Um, and other news, I, I was in Harrisburg this weekend at the Maven Optics booth, helping them. Such a good time. Really enjoyed it. Got to meet a lot of you uh, that were that listened to the show that stopped by. So it was great getting to meet you and getting to chat. And, and some of you bought some optics and everything. And uh, the booth was just packed the two days I was there. It was just nonstop people coming in. And it's awesome to see the the company maven you know growing over the last um you know six or seven years that i've been working the event for them and and using their products and everything it's it's been it's been pretty awesome so that that was cool um and also i just wanted to mention uh big truck farms uh they are giving away a 2019 ford raptor uh, this summer for anybody that buys any product from their brewery down parked in maryland so that's a pretty awesome giveaway so if you're in the area or you can make the trip would highly recommend it anybody that purchases anything there uh, is entered to win so just wanted to announce that okay so i will uh get into this episode here uh with chad sylvester it was uh this this episode is a, a really cool one chad dives deep into stuff like i do and i was excited to talk to him about annual data enjoy and have a great rest of your week all right we're live chad sylvester welcome back to the podcast man thanks for having me back bo um Sometimes I don't get asked back for a second time, so I guess I'm, I should should feel pretty honored. Yeah, well, I actually looked back at it, and I think it was all the way back in December of 2019 was the last time you were on. I literally felt like it was last year, but it's been it's been a little yeah. while, so I I figured I'll give you a second chance. You know, ah, I appreciate it. <laughs> uh, no, but seriously, thanks for coming back on and. Um, 
And uh, yeah, there's a lot. I feel like the the years just kind of have been flying by here recently. I mean, I've known you now for probably four or five years, and it's just been uh, it's been kind of a whirlwind. It has, man. Yeah, it. Uh, yeah, I, who knows where it goes, but it it, it goes. <laughs> it just keeps going. Um, so for anyone that doesn't know, um, Chad, you want to give a brief background on who you are and. Um, and uh, yeah, we'll kind of roll with it then. Sure. Um, well, thanks for the intro, Bo. My name, as Bo said, my name's Chad Sylvester. I'm a co-owner, co-founder, operator, co-operator of Exodus Outdoor Gear, which a lot of people know as Exodus Trail Cameras. Um, we've been doing that for the last, since 2015. So we've been doing that for seven years now. Um, doesn't seem like it's been that long, but it has. Yeah. Um, and we re- I reside in Northeast Ohio, kind of born and raised here, grew up on a family farm, um, a lot, you know, similar hunting heritage that hunting heritage that a lot of other folks have grew up hunting as a pastime because that's what kind of everybody in the family did. Uh, I was kind of the first guy to pick up a bow, a vertical bow in our family and, and take it a little more serious. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, that's kind of, that's kind of it in a nutshell. Yeah. And I, I can't believe that Exodus has been around for that long. I remember the first time that I stopped by uh, the Exodus booth. I think it had to have been in the first year or two you guys started at the Harrisburg show and was kind of like, did you, did you go there from the beginning? Were you at the Harrisburg? Yeah. 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 In the archery hall, I feel like. And I just remember yeah. being like, who, who are these guys coming out here with a five-year warranty thinking there's somebody? <laughs> 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 um, there was there was probably a lot of people that uh, and there's people that said that to us like what 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 good's a warranty if you're not going to be here in five years you yeah know? <laughs> that's true too yeah <laughs> but yeah you've well you made it past five years so let's see if yeah. you go go a little bit longer <laughs> yeah yeah um so what's what's been going on with exodus what has changed and <sighs> and everything and I mean, I know across the board, like any product manufacturers have had some struggles in the last couple of years and everything. So how, how's the state of the union, you know, with, with Exodus? Well, things are good, man. Um, you know, 20, I will say 2020 hit us really hard. 2020 as it did, it kind of everybody, right. Um, I mean, no one was really prepared for the COVID stuff, even though that we do a lot of stuff overseas. So we knew what was happening there. But when it hit home, it was like snap of the fingers. There goes your supply chain. There goes logistics. Things are a mess. You have no inventory to sell, which when you're a product company and you don't have any inventory to sell, like you're kind of up to creek a little bit there. Um, but it, uh, it, truthfully, it was a good learning experience for us as young business operators to go through somewhat of a hard time and, and know like where we can pull back the reins, what we need to do to like kind of course correct and make it through those hard times. Um, you know, in 20, 2015, we launched things were, I don't want to say they were, they were, they were easy because they surely weren't um, being a new company, new business owner, but you know, 2017, 2018, 2019, those years were pretty good. The economy was good. Everything was, you know, there was no hardship. Mm-hmm. So I think there's always lessons there to learn, learn uh, through hardship and adversity. And that was the, our kind of first experience dealing with that as, as business owners. So, you know, fast forward to 2021, um, doubled the company, in, you know, for a year over year from 2020 to 20, 2021. So, I mean, wow. just tremendous growth. We got some new products coming out in 2022. 
Um, we're spitting out all kinds of content. Like it's, it's good, man. Things are good. Yeah. That's, that's incredible. And, and what's, what's really cool is I feel like the trail camera space is crowded to say the least. So to see that, that you guys are growing and being able to differentiate yourselves and do that. And what, what I think is, what I, you know, I, I like watching companies and seeing kind of how they're building things from the outside, just kind of my, the way my mind works. And, and I like seeing like that, at least from my perspective and tell me if this is kind of what you were thinking or just the way it worked, but you guys wanted to do a few things really well. So like you have, you don't have a ton of products out there. You have a few cameras and you do them really well and you focus on building those cameras. And that's why you can back it with a, a five-year warranty and, and be able to have that with it. And then, then also from the content creation side, which is a whole nother animal that, you know, I'm familiar with that side of it, but have built uh, an entire basically company just from that side of it too that is um with whitetail cribs and and just all of the the informational stuff that you've guys have put out there and it's uh it's been really cool to see from the outside yeah from you know i guess to to your point or to your words about only having a few products there's really only a few different ways you can run trail cameras um, <laughs> i mean there's a lot of crossover but you have what we call like static environment models where you're putting and, and i say static environment these are things like feeders or mineral sites or bait stations there are areas where you can kind of dictate where deer are going to be in proximity to a camera where you can manipulate the camera's location obviously you can manipulate the access to that camera and you know deer are going to spend a certain amount of time there it's not a it's not a trail it's not a you know um, an ag field they're not cruising a, a down one side of a bedding area they're going to be there for a while. So that camera doesn't need to perform the same way a camera that is mounted or placed on a, you know, on a corner of an ag field or a, um, you know, on a trail on a, in a saddle or something. So there's, there's a couple of different things there where that that's what allows us just to say, okay, well, this camera is designed for a static area, a static environment, or static area. What does that camera need to do? And let's just do that. And with, you know, and then let's look at the dynamic settings or the dynamic environments. Let's focus on that scenario. And then you have the cell cameras, which obviously um, kind of extrapolates that a little bit. But there's there's only a handful of things you could really do. Yeah, no, I, I I can I can understand that. And I think like you know with you guys focusing on building the cameras that are are focused on being able to catch that movement and the, the trigger speed and having all that stuff. And I'm I'm not talking very technical from my own self here, but you know to be able to do that, then you can take the static part of it. And when you're looking at a feeder, and that's the easy part, right? After you're able to to, yeah. to capture the other things, you know, with it. And, you know, since, since I've been watching some of your uh, videos on your YouTube channel and everything and, and being able to learn about cameras and how to operate them efficiently, like th that's been, I mean, it's not like super sexy information. Like it's not, you're not, you're not going to make it like, uh, someone's going to want to click on it unless they really want to like make exactly their, make their shit operate better <laughs> and like for me i i, I enjoy that stuff but uh it, it's been it's been really helpful to to learn how cameras operate and be able to do that in the background of it and i mean i've been i've been running your uh your cameras now for probably four years or so and um i think all of them except for one that got taken out by a bears and in operation and actually sent it back to you guys and i have it back i just don't have it out in the out in the woods yet so it's uh 
they've been all running pretty strong, which is, is something to say. I probably have, I don't know, 15 of them now, something like that. So that's good. That's good, man. That's yeah. good. Yeah. I yeah, love the, it. The, the educational content stuff's funny because it's like we rack our brains on how we can make it more entertaining and more fun. <laughs> but, the, but the bottom line is everybody we have in the office, we're a bunch of a boring asses. Like no one, you know, we have no sense of humor. We're kind of straight laced, like not nerds, but uh, we're not nerdy tech guys, but we just, you know, just don't have a sense of humor to bring any uh, entertainment value to the education. So that's all you get. Bob. Well, no, I, I, I didn't mean it by that. I just meant the topics <laughs> themselves are, uh, are, are, are not, uh, yeah, they're dry, you know, <laughs> that's just all there is to it. If you tried to make it super funny, it'd be kind of, be kind of awkward. But, uh, uh, but anyways, that, that was, uh, that's been cool. And, and the other thing I wanted to ask about is the whitetail cribs thing where that idea came from and how that's kind of evolved because I feel like that's blown up. Yeah, we um, we definitely kind of hit a chord with that. Well, Cameron and Jake were in Iowa, and they went out to record some podcasts or something. I, I can't remember exactly what they were on the road for, but it's like we go talk to all these people, and we try to do as much stuff in person as we – you know, this was pre-COVID days. We try to do as much content as possible like in person, and the first thing people want to show you – are their deer and they want to tell you the stories and they want to like relive those memories. And we were like, why are we even here talking about all the strategy stuff? Like there's, there's a whole other segment of content just talking about these folks deer. Like, let's just turn the camera on right when we walk through the door and see what happens. So that's kind of where it stemmed from. And then as we kind of spitballed that in the office, it was like, well, why don't we just like, I personally am really interested in, learning how other people live, like successful, like the one percenters, like the one percenters of, of deer hunters, the one percenters of, of businessmen. I want to know like what their daily habits are, if they do something different, um, like the little quirks, that stuff interests me. So when you start talking to these highly successful deer hunters, like I want to know how they live. I want to know like how they arrange their closets. I want to know like how meticulous they are with their tools and their shop. I want to know if like all the bush light cans are turned a certain direction in their fridge, you know? <laughs> So, um, we just started filming the whole thing as like a spinoff of, of, uh, of MTV cribs, like the old, that, um, you know, the show that was on in the early two thousands with the celebrities and stuff. Yeah. So that's kind of, that's kind of where it stemmed from. Yeah. It's, it's been, it's been super cool to, to watch that and see all the different places you've been to and hear the stories. Cause that's like, that's, that's the best part is hearing those stories and hearing people relive those, those memories and those moments. And, and, uh, I, I just thought that was a, a super cool idea that, that you guys had come up with there. That's for sure. Yeah, thank are you, you. you going to continue to do that this, this year? Um, we are, but we've kind of dialed it back. So we just started doing that in 2020 or no, maybe it was the, later part of 2019 like december 2019 i think is when we aired the first couple episodes and since then we've done over 100 episodes and you know i'm gonna say 26 months yeah which is like insane and we're going like we're going all over the place to do these things um it's you know it's a we spend a lot of man hours a lot of resources on it so we've kind of the audience has told us like through through analytics that we're probably putting too much content out and some of it's not being um, given justice. So we're going to dial it back to, we're going to dial that back to 13 or 14, 15 episodes a year and just start airing them 
around quarter three through quarter four, kind of through that cyclical peak of content consumption. Yeah. Uh, that, that makes sense. I couldn't imagine just the, the travel schedules and going around and, and, uh, to meet up with everybody and lining up all those schedules. Cause I know you try to hit like certain, you know, if you're going to Pennsylvania, you're going to try to hit three, four or five people in that area if possible to, to batch that stuff together. Exactly. Um, one thing I wanted to, to say when you're talking about learning about like the one percenters, you know, outside of the whitetail space, there's a book that you may or may not have read already, but it's tools of Titans. Have you read it? Tim Ferriss. You need, you need to read that. It's literally a bunch of, um, I haven't finished it yet. I've had it for a while and I just read a little bit at a time because they make them in bite-sized sections and it's basically just going through, I mean, each person, like very super high level type people like Arnold Schwarzenegger and all these other people in different, different categories. And, you know, from when they wake up, little things they do and little, it's just, it's really interesting. Cause I'm, I, I like, I like that kind of stuff too. And, and learning from it and it's pretty cool to, to see that. So I figured you'd, you'd yeah. appreciate that. Yeah. I just, uh, just shot that down in my notebook. I'll, as soon as we get wrapped up, I'll probably, probably order it. <laughs> there you go. Um, but anyway, so what, um, you, you got to do a little bit of hunting this fall and, um, I have to say that your Kansas buck was one of the most impressive deer I've seen in seen in a long time. Thank you, man. Yeah, I appreciate that. It was uh, uh, it was probably long overdue the last couple of years. Um, so it was kind of like it, it felt good to get a big one on the ground and get get kind of get off my back after a, a dry spell for a while. But um, have you ever wanted to have Levi Morgan, Andy May, Johnny Stewart, and others available at all times? Well, you can with CyberScout from Spartan Forge. CyberScout is like the chat GPT for outdoors men and women. You can ask it any questions related to bow building, scouting, hunting, survival, and a whole lot more. I think you'll be impressed with how it responds. CyberScout is currently out now for a select group of early beta testers and will be available to the rest of you really soon. The entire app is a complete tool for planning your hunt with incredible aerial imagery mapping, journaling, deer prediction, and some of the most accurate and detailed weather data. Use the code EASTMEETSWEST to save 20%. And if you're still on the fence, give the 14-day free trial a chance at SpartanForge.ai. CVA has been America's number one selling muzzleloader brand for over a decade. Hunting with a muzzleloader opens up a ton of hunting opportunities across the U.S. And I've been using the Acura series. But they don't only make badass muzzleloaders. Their line of centerfire rifles are great quality and not terrible on the wallet. The Cascade Short Barrel is ideal for tight quarters, deer drives, and quick shots in the big woods. You can check out their line of muzzleloaders, rifles, and accessories for every season and every range at bpioutdoors.com CVA. If you use the code EASTMEETSWEST10, you'll get 10% off of all CVA products, which includes rifles, muzzleloaders, and accessories. You know, things just came together. I don't want to say it was luck because it certainly wasn't luck. I mean, we were there in the, in the spring scouting, um, didn't know about that specific deer, but the sign said there was a big deer there. We actually didn't run cameras on that piece because there was so much human pressure. Um, but at the end of the day, it was, uh, you know, that's the first, that's the first buck I've ever killed on the ground with my bow. And to, 
you know, to kill a deer, deer like that at five yards on the ground, like the whole encounter being five or six minutes within 13 yards. It was just, it was just absolutely insane. So talk about that, that, that encounter and how you saw them or how, how that all played out because this is, this is epic. <laughs> okay. Well, um, as I mentioned, we were there in, in the, uh, in the spring. Um, we actually went to Turkey hunt with the guys at the office, but in my mind, like I knew I was going to draw the tag. So I was there to, to hang cameras and scout. So we covered just about every Weehaw or public piece in that unit in Kansas. And the last piece that we walked on the way before uh, we headed back East was a little piece that was way out of the way. It was an hour from any other walk-in, kind of isolated, but it was really the only cover in a really large agricultural area. I mean, probably like 12, 13, 14 square miles, like big area, and there's no timber. Um, and this piece was about 250 acres, had a creek running through it. Um, you know, your typical Kansas kind of creek bottom stuff that you see, a lot of plum brush, um, cottonwoods, and everything else on that parcel was, um, was CRP. So there's a lot of edge. I mean, if you, if you were to walk the edge of that Creek on both sides with the finger, um, the, the timber fingers there, there's probably a mile and a half, two miles of edge there. But anyways, we scouted that in the spring. There was so much human sign there that I kept that spot in my back pocket and didn't think I wanted to mess with it. So I didn't hang any cameras. Um, and in my mind, like when we're, going on a trip like that, that far away from home, like the last thing I want to do is deal with pressure. Like I just, let me get away from people and I'll figure everything else out is kind of my, my mentality. But, uh, we had a hot day. I think it was the second day that we were there, which would have been like November 9th or something. It was a hot day. So we did some driving, trying to glass deer from the road. And I, we, I wanted to drive that piece to see, you know, if there's any, uh, the truck parked there, if I could see any sign any, of any human traffic or whatever, I mean, you're driving dirt roads and people are pulling off in the grass. It's pretty easy to see tire marks and stuff. So, uh, we drove past it that afternoon. There was no signs of anybody being in there. Um, and we glassed around a little bit to see if we could see any stands or anything set up on the, you know, on the edges, couldn't see anything. So the next morning or the next day, um, we had planned to go glass in the area in the morning. And if nothing panned out, I told myself, like, I'll come back in here and scout my way in, in the afternoon and set up in the evening. So on my way in, um, I kind of gave up the back third of the property with the wind. The wind was coming out of the, the north, northwest, and I could only access that place from the north. So I kind of made a big loop, gave up the back third of the property and scouted my way in down um, the downwind edge of one of those fingers. And again, like I had pins on Onyx for my my spring scouting, so all the areas I had interest in were, were upwind of me. So I got in, I was, you know, I was taking a clean access in my mind, I guess I was taking a clean access route. So as I was getting in there, I bumped a couple does and they ran to this inside corner. Um, and so I'm just like, okay, it's November 10th. Like I'm going to fall. I'm going to see where they're going. You know, I want to know where the deer are traveling. It'll probably take me to, to some kind of in, interesting point. So I get to this inside corner and I look ahead kind of where the CRP dumps into the timber and it kind of opens up a little bit there. I saw a buck with his nose to the ground. Not a big deer, but like 115, 120 inch deer. And I, and I only caught just a short glimpse of him. So I immediately like jumped back into that inside corner. And uh, there was a little cedar thicket there. So I got up against a cedar tree where the cedar thickets to my back. And I got some antlers, um, my rattling antlers out, and just started making ground noise. Knocked an arrow, started making ground noise. Like, you know, trying to draw that deer out in the CRP to see if there was good, better look at him. 20 minutes went by never got a visual on that deer. And I was like, okay, those, those just ran through there. I'm sure one of them are hot. 
I'm not going to pull him off. You know, he's, he's probably just trailing that doe. So as I turned around to pack my stuff up, I was thinking in my head, like, I got to get into a tree. I just saw a buck with his nose to the ground. Two does just ran through there. It's windy. I can't hear anything. You know, in Kansas, the wind's blowing like crazy. So I have no visual advantage. I have no audible advantage. Like I got to get up so I can see something. So as I turned around, um, I, you know, facing that cedar thicket, I caught a, a rub and it was a good rub. Um, so I walked over to investigate shavings were on top of the leaves. So, you know, had been fresh after the leaves fell, not more than a week old. I saw one and then I looked a little further and I saw two and then I saw a third one. And then I saw the, the most rubs I've ever seen in, in one area. There's probably 12, 13, 14, 15 rubs in an area, probably five yards by 10 yards, something like that. And right dab smack in the middle is a dirt worn bed. Now the rubs are thigh size, waist to chest high from previous years. From this year, there's a solid entry trail, a very defined entry trail coming in across the Creek and then an exit trail that paralleled, paralleled that Creek, um, went West through like 50 yards of a, like a, um, plum brush thicket had like plum brush, some briars, um, some locust saplings and some treetops that had fallen. So long story short, I walked that exit trail and it takes me right to the spot where those does ran. It takes me right to the spot where I saw that buck with his nose to the ground. I was like, all right, like, I don't need to see anything else. I'm going to set up here. Like anybody would have done that. So long story short, I saw five or six bucks that day chasing those does back and forth from that spot, but I could never get up in the air. The trees were all funky and, um, those locust trees had a bunch of thorns and the cottonwoods were eight feet round. I yeah. just could not, I could not get up in anything. So I made a little, um, made a little ground blind tucked in between two cedar trees, just took some deadfalls and, you know, covered myself up basically. So the next morning I knew I wanted to go back into that spot and I wanted to make sure like the th thing on my mind was don't bump those does because if I bump those does off that piece, there's a good chance like a buck's going to hook up with them at, at some point in the next 24 hours. It was November 10th. A buck wasn't on with them, you know, that day, like it's going to happen sooner or later. If I bump those does off this piece, like it could be the end of the hunt. So I waited until, um, till I could see, I waited until gray light to even start walking in. Mm -hmm. It was about 800, 800 yard walk. Got in clean, um, eight 20 in the morning, had an encounter with 120 inch deer that was literally three or four feet behind me. Like I had my back to a cedar tree mm -hmm. and this, this deer is on the other side of the cedar tree, like maybe the size of a Christmas tree. So like eight foot tall, <laughs> um, behind him was a one fifty, And, uh, I saw a third deer that morning. It was probably 110, 115 inches. Well, hold fact, on a I, second. You, did, were you, were you, did you have an opportunity at the one fifty, or did you decide not to, to shoot? Yeah. Yeah. Good question. So, um, <laughs> those deer came in from like my nine o'clock and okay. I didn't hear, I didn't, and I'm only set up probably 10 yards from this Creek on that exit trail. Um, so I didn't, I never saw either one of those deer. I heard a deer cross coming through the water is how, and then I, when I snapped my head around the deer, that 120 was coming up over the bank and he came right to like right to my cedar tree. And that 150 was just on the other side of the Creek. So he was within 25 yards, but he was, again, he was in some brush, yeah. but I could see him. Um, and actually when that 120 busted out of there, he never, he didn't, I don't think he caught my wind. He may have caught me moving because I wasn't looking at him. I was watching that 150. He busted out of there and I let a snort wheeze. And uh, 
150 was like unsure of what was going on. So he just kind of turned around and started walking away, but he was walking in a manner that he was parallel in the Creek. And I thought, you know, I'm in a spot where I have enough cover. Like I could get up and parallel him and I might get a shot at this deer. So I got up and I followed that deer kind of side by side for probably 40 yards wait, waiting to try to get an opportunity to shoot him. And then I lost the visual and I never, I never did see where that deer went. Okay. Um, so I come back to the ground blind and then maybe 10 or 15, 20 minutes later, I had 110, 115 inch deer come in that I thought I was going to shoot because I seen him coming through the CRP. I turned the camera on. I'm like, if this deer comes in, he looked, he was tall and tight Yeah. from, from a distance. I was like, okay, he could be a player. So I picked my bow up, turned the camera on. And I'm like, if this deer comes in, like I'm, I might shoot him, you know, long story short, it didn't happen. And then, uh, the rest of the afternoon was really quiet, man. I sat there for uh, hours and hours thinking if I would have been in a tree, I could have shot that 150. Like if I would have been in a tree elevated, I would have been able to shoot over the Creek and that deer would be dead. My tag would be filled and I'd be, I'd be celebrating right now. So there was three or four times throughout the afternoon. I got up and I walked around in this, you know, 15 yard circle trying to get into a tree. And I just couldn't make it happen. <laughs> and I was so frustrated, man. I was beating myself up over it. And finally at like three o'clock, I just decided like, I can't get into a tree. This is a spot. Like it's going to have to happen off the ground. So I basically broke a couple branches off that cedar tree and made like, I'm not exaggerating, like a, smaller than a men's size basketball. I just broke a couple branches to make a little shooting window right, right through that, that tree. And, um, so I'm at this point, I've been on my knees all day. My knees are killing me. My feet are numb. I'm like, I got to sit on my butt, stretch my legs out a little bit. So I'm sitting flat on my butt. I have a tripod and a camera set off to my right. I'm facing that bed, which, you know, that, um, that exit trail went through that kind of thicket into a, and it kind of terminated right at the, where two treetops had fallen over. So there's like a wall of treetops that were like eight foot tall. So at four o'clock, I catch movement there. And this, and those treetops are only like 13, 14 yards from me. Like they're already in the bubble. Yeah. I catch some movement there and there's a deer standing on the other side of those tops. And I can see him. I can see it move. It's licking his nose and it's putting his nose to the air. But the wind's blowing over its back. It's moving with a tailwind. So it's standing there, kind of like surveying the opening, looking around, looking across the creek, and he's there for three or four minutes. And I cannot tell what the heck it is. All I can catch is like glimpses of its nose, glimpse of a butt, glimpse of a tail. Never saw any antlers. Could never get a, um, a good visual of like the body size, the front shoulder. I just couldn't tell what it was. So as I'm watching this deer, it starts to – it starts to walk towards the creek and walk towards like the base of that deadfall. And then all of a sudden, a 170-inch 10-pointer jumps over the log, jumps over that deadfall, lands in my shooting window. My bow is just – I'm not drawn. My bow's vertical. My bow's in my hand. And now he goes through the shooting window, and he's on the other side of the cedar tree from me. Like he's within 10 feet of me. <laughs> I'm sitting flat on my butt. I'm like – if he takes two steps, he's going to win me. If he takes two steps, he's going to win me. So now like my only shot is like, I'm thinking it's seven o'clock over my left shoulder. I can't shoot that off my butt. So the first thing I do is rip my bow back. I'm like, I got to get drawn and I'll figure the rest out. Right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I get drawn 
and I'm trying to get to my knees with this deer 10 feet away from me. He's on the other side of the cedar tree. He has no idea that I'm there. I'm trying to get to my knees and I'm like, dude, this is never going to work. I'm going to bump this stupid camera next to me or I'm going to hit a limb and a limb's going to move and he's going to snap his head around. Well, I ended up getting to one knee and I was like, and it took me about 20 seconds to do that. Just moving, you know, ultra slow. Yeah. And, um, I was just like, you know what? I have to let my bow down because if he takes two steps, he's going to win me anyways. I got to take a chance. So I'm shooting a freaking a Cameron Haynes, 80 pound, you know, maxed out freaking prime. So I, I let my, I let, I let my bow down. And as soon as I do that, man, the deer snaps its head around and I'm just like, my heart sinks. And like, I feel like the instant defeat, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but he, he looked, he looked, he was looking through the cedar tree. I didn't move, didn't do anything. He looked and looked and looked. And all of a sudden he just turned his head back and looked the other way, looked across the Creek. Like he was, he knew something wasn't right. And he was trying to figure out, do I need to go over the Creek? Do I need to keep going the way I'm going? Or do I need to turn around and go back towards my bed? Well, when he looked the other way, I drew my bow again. And that deer turned around and took two steps right through that shooting window. And I shot him quarter and away at five yards. I mean, and he went, um, he never even made it back to his bed. He, I was set up 70 yards from his bed and he went 50 yards and died. Oh man. That is, that's absolutely incredible. I <laughs> to have an encounter with a deer that size on the ground. And I've come to love hunting on the ground. Like, I don't know this year I spent a lot of time doing it and it's super difficult. Mm-hmm. Like one thing two. It's, it's just the interaction that you have at ground level is just absolutely insane. It is, man. Um, I mean, I was fired up when that 120 was behind the tree. Yeah. Being that close and, and seeing their body language and just, they just look different when you're at eye level. Mm-hmm. There's, I mean, there's no other way to put it. Yeah. That's insane. And so how many days were you there in Kansas? Um, I think we were there in total 12 days but I, I killed on the fourth day. So I was out there with Clint Campbell and I killed on the fourth day and I stayed out and, and was, I filmed Clint and helped him glass. And that's what we were, a lot of what we were doing was trying to glass and spot and stock or glass and then move in and, mm-hmm. and, and, and do things that way. So, um, I stayed out there another, whatever it was, eight days, I guess, another week. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. You, I, I definitely think uh, you were, uh, do for that deer because i know the last few years you were chasing specific deer and stuff and it just that's a grind man that's i i give you props for doing that that's something that i go back and forth on whether i want to do that again and it's uh it's not an easy not an easy task it's it's not man um you know i don't know if i like to like romanticize about it or like what like the thought of doing it on a on a big deer it's there's something about it that intrigues me but dude it's it is it's mentally it is it is difficult especially when you get your butt kicked like like i did um, yeah you know i had an encounter and blew it and then never got a second chance like it yeah it just 
it screwed with my head for a while. Yeah. I mean, I, I didn't mean to bring that up and get you, you know, start no, going no. down, go, start going down a bad road. You know, you just got through recovery and you went, you know, <laughs> <laughs> therapies helped you. I know, but like, you know, I just, <laughs> it's, I, I'll, I'll, I'll be honest. Like I, I do go back and forth very often on like, do I really want to do, do this again? You know, so I've my personal thought, which is kind of a half-assed way of looking at it, but I'm like, I'm going to target a specific deer, but if a deer that I'm happy with comes by while I'm hunting this deer, I'm going to do that, which traditionally, um, you know, to kill really big deer, you have to be more disciplined than that. But uh, I, I'm just not, I don't know if I'm at that point yet. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah, I, I don't know if I'll ever do it again unless it's something, I mean, it has to be an awful special animal. Yeah. But what, what did, um, you know, when, when you were hunting, um, that other deer, you know, what, what did you learn though? Because I know you had hunted this deer for a while and you'd run a lot of cameras. You hunted that area for multiple years and so what, you know, what are some things that you kind of learned, um, from that experience, you know, from, you and I are, I, I, or me and you are very aligned on the, the standpoint of annual data and being able to utilize that, you know, from trail cameras, from encounters, from just scouting, all those types of things. So what are some things that you learned um, from, from hunting that deer about just deer in general or, you know, about that? Um, the biggest thing that I learned from hunting that deer was that just because you're not getting a picture of that deer does not mean that the, that deer is not in the area. Um, that's the one big thing that I learned. Um, but it, you know, the two years that I spent hunting that deer, I mean, we had a lot of history with him. I had a, a shed, uh, his three-year-old shed. I mean, we had pictures of him since 2000, I think it was 17, uh, when we first started getting pictures of that deer and I was hunting him in, in, in 19 and 20, 19 and yeah, 19 and 20, the two years that I spent hunting him. Um, but it reconfirmed, it, it, it just confirmed all of our, the thought process of, you know, running cameras and long-term sets and not necessarily going in and checking them all the time, trying to find MRI, but using last year's information in years to come. So going back to having pictures of that deer, I guess we may have had him on camera when he was one or two, but we just didn't pay attention to him as a three-year-old, he was 150 inches. Yeah. Um, so that's when like he caught, caught our attention. Um, but he was, he would be in the same areas, the same time, you know, year over year, over year, over year. And, you know, we had that belief about annual trail camera data. Um, when Matt, we used annual trail camera data to kill a deer that Matt shot in 2000, I want to say it was 2016, where we literally probably had 50 cameras out for one deer trying to find this deer through the summer. Cause we'd only get pictures of them for like a six day window in a rut and that deer would disappear. So we dedicated all these cameras to try to find this deer. We never got a single picture of that deer on any of those cameras, but 364, 364 days later, he showed up on the same camera he was on last year at like four o'clock in the morning. And we went in that day, we went that in that day to check camera. So I guess it would have been 365 days later, went in and checked that camera, saw he was there overnight and, we shot that deer at five steps at four o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> Insane. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, the lessons that I learned from that specific deer is, um, you know, you could do all the things right in your mind and, um, 
still not have success. That's one thing that I learned. And sometimes it just doesn't work out. You know, you, there's times where you can't control all the variables. Um, the other thing I learned is not be more cautious of where you're sharing information about a deer like that. Um, that cost me some trouble. You know, it was on public, public ground and we talked about it. Yeah. Um, that caused me some trouble. I probably didn't need. And, um, also be more aggressive with your shot opportunities. Um, we had that deer on film at, I was like 13 or 14 yards for a couple minutes. And then I was at draw, full draw for a long time on him and didn't shoot him because I was waiting for the perfect shot. And was, you know, th- there was a shot there that I, I, I should have took. I should have been more aggressive and took it. Um, and I still kick myself in the butt for that. So, I mean, all that kind of combined is, I guess, is the, the takeaways that I got from, from that specific deer. Yeah, no, that, that's, that is a hard, that is a hard, uh, lesson there because you know about the the shot and when when to shoot and when to to do that and when's that that right opportunity but i mean you know it from running a podcast and getting to talk to a lot of very successful hunters even through the the whitetail cribs the guys that are killing a lot of big deer year after year they they make it happen they shoot shoot. they they definitely make not not taking you know unethical shots but they have to make tough shots when they need to and uh yes i'm i'm personally learning that myself and uh it's just a, a constant you know evolving and and learning from those those types of situations but you know about the sharing the the information there that's uh that's something that i'm definitely struggling with myself and uh you know when you're creating content and you're doing that kind of stuff and you're talking about things it's very difficult. Now I've, I've come to the conclusion now that I don't, I don't share any information or I, I don't share any information on a buck that I'm hunting or any photos of a deer that I'm hunting until I know he's confirmed dead by myself or somebody else at this point. And, you know, it'd make probably better content if I shared all of it in the process as it's going, but it, uh, it's not worth it. I, I had it this past year where someone was waiting at the waiting at the gate by my truck for me. That's happened to be a, uh, a follower on Instagram. And, and then, uh, it was just, it was a, a you know, tough situation. It seemed like they were everywhere that I was and it made right. it, it made it, it made it difficult. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's hard enough to kill them when you're, you know, when you don't have, when you don't have that stuff. <laughs> yeah. That's the thing. Yeah. And, you know, and, and when you're talking about like, all right, this deer, even though, other deer, you know, what you learn from running cameras and, you know, year after year in some of these spots and letting them sit is, you know, that they were coming back and, and doing similar things. So you were talking about certain dates. Was there anything like uh, weather patterns or anything else that like year after year, or maybe certain weeks or something that you saw that were, was similar there? Um, yeah, there, there, there was some stuff that deer would not summer in that area but he would come back around August 18th every year. And he would only be there for a day. It was like, he was coming through that area for a a very short window to check out what was going on. I don't know if he was looking at food sources or checking to see if the habitat had changed at all. It was like, he was making like a cruising trip just to see what, what his normal fall, what he would call, I guess, fall range, what his fall range, um, look like and i thought that was really interesting that's the first time that i had picked up on that Mm -hmm. and i really really never put that 
together two and two. I mean, we saw the trail camera data say that, but then I heard Mark Drury talk about, um, talk about that same concept about, well, I'm shooting a new bow this year and I am pumped after playing around with the buddies Hoyt RX eight, the smile on my face made the decision for me. The first thing I noticed with the new Hoyts were their extremely smooth draw cycles and the ability to adjust the back wall to make it rock solid. Like I prefer. I outfitted my own RX-8 with the inline accessories that made installation extremely easy and balanced out the bow. My favorite accessory so far is a simple one. It's the GoStix 2.0 adjustable legs to make your bow like a tripod, but it doesn't interfere with any part of the bow or the limbs or anything like that. In addition, the integrated kickstand within the HBX Exact Cams protect your string from excess wear when you put your cam into the dirt. Ground hunting or spot and stock just got easier. If you want to experience what I'm talking about, head to your nearest Hoyt dealer and take a test drive yourself. You can learn more at Hoyt.com. The Mobile Hunters Expo is a consumer-based hunting show unlike any other. It provides an interactive learning experience where you can try all things mobile hunting and learn from the best in the business. Come experience an unbiased, community-based environment where you can improve your hunting skills and find the right equipment for your needs. I'll be speaking at the Nor'easter Show in Mannheim, Pennsylvania at Spooky Nook Sports from August 9th to 11th, 2024. So come check it out or either of the other shows in uh, Michigan and Georgia. You can purchase tickets online at themobilehuntersexpo.com or grab tickets at the door. I'll see you there. Specific dates on when to check your cameras. And he will not check his cameras. Like the last card pull that he does over the summer is that later portion of August, but never before like August 20th because he sees the same thing. He sees a lot of deer that don't necessarily um, summer on his piece make that one day or two day excursion looking at their fall range or around those dates, or they come in and just and, 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 and live there for the rest of the fall. So that was one thing that we picked up on that deer for sure. Interesting. I'm going to have to go back and look at some of my, my data, um, with that because I, I, I log a lot of my trail camera data and look at that, but traditionally it's during hunting season. I haven't looked back, but you know, like there's, there's a deer that, that, uh, that I'm currently hunting that, I couldn't, I can't find them during the summer. I, no matter what I do, I feel like I've got cameras everywhere. I can't find them during the summer, but he does show up I, sometime in the late summer towards the end of velvet. I don't know exactly what the dates are. I'm going to have to go back and look, but he shows back up and then he disappears again. And then he, he's, he comes back in like late September disappears again. And then I don't see him until about the rut. And it's, uh, he, he's been, been difficult. To, to figure out from that standpoint. Yeah. I mean, outside of that, um, it's all your, I mean, it's everything everyone else talks about, you know, it's the, you know, daylight activity that run that first cold front in, in later portion of October, the later half of October, we always see good activity around that time. Um, the signing phase of the pre rut when scrapes start to heat up like that third week of October gets hot. Um, we've seen consistent, well, we've, Relatively, with relative consistency, we've seen deer um, use scrapes in the daytime, both in the morning and night, around precipitation events. Which you know, that's stuff other guys talk about too. Yep. Um, so there's nothing really groundbreaking per se with um, you know what we're doing there. It's just 
capturing that data. And I say long-term sets, you know, outside of the rut, we don't really, don't really have any intentions of going in and checking those cameras all the time. Um, because from my standpoint, my point of view is the more I can stay out of an area and let those cameras do the work, the more pure those data points are. Like there's no human influence on them. Um, I mean, who knows? I mean, it's hard to say, but if you get in a pattern of going and checking your cameras every two weeks, I mean, uh, how many days does it take for that area to recover from that, from that intrusion? Are you losing two days of data? Are you losing three days of data? I mean, yeah. I, I don't, I don't know. Um, but it's all about for us just taking as many variables out of that equation as possible and getting the most accurate data points as you can to use for the following year. Yeah. And, and, you know, so when like, I know for myself, like if I go into a new area, like last year I scouted a new new piece and I went in and I dropped like four cameras off and I put one on a uh, nice hub creek bottom scrape that was a bunch of valleys uh, drained into it and and I put a camera there and then I went up and I was part way up on the ridge and I found what looked like it was a bed that was come down, but it was closer to the, uh, I'd say bottom one third, but a nice bench system going around another scrape. I dropped another camera and I went up the ridge some further and got up towards that upper one third and found, actually jumped a deer. Um, this was, I don't know. The end of or beginning of May, and I'd saw some some big bases on him. He jumped, dropped over the hill out of this bed, and there was a scrape near there. So I threw another camera. Then I got up towards the top, and there was a logging cut up on the top, um, and where the the draw came up and pinched there. I threw another camera. Well, I put those in there at the end of April, beginning of May there, and I haven't been back since to this point, you know, like when I go into a new area, a lot of times I don't look at it from, I'm going to hunt it this year. I'll leave those cameras run. And sometimes you have issues, something, maybe ferns grow up or something and it, you know, fills up your SD card, whatever it is. But for me, I don't, I, I like seeing that just raw data that's through, there's no intrusion by myself in there and then utilize that for next year going in and maybe adjusting those cameras. What, what's kind of, what's, what's kind of your play with something like that? If you're going into a, a new spot to start gathering some of that Intel. It's very similar. Um, if it's in an, into a new spot that we just kind of, we'd call it kind of like pre-scouting, like we're letting the cameras kind of do the scouting to see if there's any interest of doing like on the boots, on the boots uh, or boots on the ground scouting. Um, the only thing different that we would do that you kind of just laid out is we'll go back and actually check those cameras one time before the season, mm -hmm. just to make sure there's not a mishap to make sure like there's not a broken branch. You That's know, smart by the way. <laughs> blocking. Yeah. Um, making sure the batteries are okay. Make, you know, just making sure the cameras are functional and operational operationable because ultimately like the data that you're getting, you know, from late September through January, like th that's what you're more than likely going to make the decision on. If the cameras aren't working yeah. and it's kind of, it's kind of a lost cause. So that's the only thing we would do different in that scenario. Yeah. And that's, um, and that's one of those things where that was my plan is, uh, I like to get in there. It just, <laughs> and you know, it's not even really like it's, if, if I look at it and I actually prioritize it, it's really not that hard to do it, but it's just, you know, one of those things that just slips up and you don't don't get back in there and and it it is a heartbreaker and you think I'd learn from how many times I've had that happen where stuff happens to your cameras and everything but all right so like so when you go into those um those places are you are you doing similar like what I was talking about say you go into an area of like hill country or something that has different train levels are you trying to set it up 
in that kind of like on different terrain levels, different ridges or like, how's, how are you kind of trying to spread that out or letting the sign dictate that? Well, um, we usually start on the bottoms. We usually start scouting on the bottoms because a lot of times that's where you find the most sign, but a lot of it's nighttime sign. Like you said, those thermal hubs where you have several points dumping down, usually you'll find a trail or a runway down one of those points. A lot of times there's a nice, uh, um, scrape line there. So we'll start down there and then kind of work our way up in elevation. Um, we used to focus a lot around that general top one third, you know, Dan and pretty much everybody talks about in hill country with, um, you know, the wind tunnel or thermal thermal tunnel. But something that I learned from hunting that big deer for a couple of years is that in different types of terrain, thermals, I mean, generally speaking, thermals rise and as the air temperature heats up and they, you know, they fall in the evenings. Um, but we found that deer moving a lot on lower one third in, in daylight. So you would think specifically later in the mornings and it was in a kind of on a North facing slope, a Northwest facing slope that was really steep on the backside of a bowl. That's where that deer was living. And the first couple of times we went in there to hunt, we, were, we would drop milkweed and the thermals there would fall really, really late into the afternoon, which was like, did not make sense to me at all. But then the more I thought about it, the more I thought about it, I'm sitting there in the stand and I'm sitting on this Northwest facing slope. That's really steep. And there's a bench below me on the bottom one third. So I'm on the bottom one third of like a 500 foot elevation change mm-hmm. and thermals are falling at 10 o'clock in the morning. I'm like this, like, how does this make sense? And I'm looking, I'm sitting in the shade. I'm sitting in dark timber. I mean, it's late October. The sun is so far in the Southern sky. The sun is not hitting that hillside, but it's hitting everything on the other side of the point. And it's also hitting every, everything across this very steep bottom. So a lot of stuff that I hunt is, um, it's very steep, like up and down. I, you're, you're kind of familiar with that area. Yep. So, you know, the ridge across the bottom from me is facing east, has all the sun, and these thermals are getting sucked down. From the stand, it looks like they're going down, but they're really getting sucked out across that bottom. And when they hit that bottom, they hit warm air, and then they sh- shoot up. So that deer is cruising that, using that bottom one-third in the, af- in the late morning, with thermals falling versus thermals rising, which was like, did not make sense to me. And it took me a while to kind of wrap my head around what was going on there. But that let me hunt that deer in that location because that was so consistent. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one thing that we've kind of shifted gears on more. We used to just focus a lot of our stuff on the upper one third, a lot around terrain features and points, benches. I mean, you know, the typical stuff, but then, we're almost looking now for those, for those bowls that have those Northwest facing slopes and tight bottoms where you can manipulate the wind and the thermals for those late morning hunts. You know, that's a, such a good point too, because like, you know, in, and it's tough on a, a podcast or do, or anything like that to really be able to accentuate any, any certain scenario and put a rule to it, but you, you know, you kind of, you kind of have to you look at the the majority of the times and what things, you know, thermals, you know, falling when, when the shades out or, you know, in, in the, uh, I guess in the evenings and then coming up and, you know, in the mornings when the sun comes out and th- those are rules of thumb, but that's all they are. Like you gotta, like, I, I thought 
you had done, I think it was an article, maybe you did a video on it too, a good one about wind mapping. And then also like applying that when you're in the place. And that's why I'm always walking around milkweed and trying to understand it. You know, I've talked about it before, but there's an area that, that I hunt. That's a whole, the whole side hills, hemlocks, and it's literally downhill thermals all the time. It's just all the time. doesn't matter what the wind direction is. That wind comes down there, except for when it gets super, super cold. Like I'm talking teens and lower in late season, those, those hemlocks create almost like warmth that you don't really feel it as you as a person underneath it, but enough that it creates an uphill thermal, um, that later in the season. And it's just, you, you don't know until you, you have to, you got to play with it. And again, you have those rules of thumbs and, and you have those things that, that you, that you utilize, but you, you also got to understand every place is a little bit different. That's, that's just it. Um, to your point, it's about having those experiences and looking at things kind of from like outside the box and trying mm-hmm. to cri- critically think about what the heck's going on. And when you can learn those um, situations or concepts or strategies, whatever you want to experience, whatever you want to call them, like you could put those in the back of your, you know, put them in your playbook and then know like when you hit that scenario again, like, well, this worked over here. Let me try that first before I, you know, rack my brain about what's going on. Yeah, definitely. And, and, uh, the, you know, the fact that you can use that, like you were talking about looking for those, those Northwest facing slopes and those tight bowls and everything. Like that's something that you, when you find one of those situations, now you can look at that when you're looking at a map and you're e-scouting, you're doing this, like you find things that look like that in other places and you can reasonably assume that you might have a similar, uh, situation, you know, and then as you start building up that Intel and that, that data and then you're able to start pulling that and and you you probably wouldn't have known that without your trail cameras of telling you that buck was moving in there in daylight or even got curious enough to no to check it out nope yeah we would not been there had it not been had not been a trail camera um telling us there was a buck there moving in daylight yeah it's i don't know it's just it's one of those things that like do you uh, I'm interested. I don't know if I've asked you this before, but do you have a way of like logging that information? Do you write it down in a journal? Do you put it in your phone? What, what, what do you do? Or is it just all in, in that head of yours? No, no, <laughs> I, I, I wish, um, I wish I had a better system for a while. We used deer lab. Um, that buck that I was talking about in 2016, that one that we've really first got onto with annual trail camera data. That was, you know, we used deer lab for that deer. Um, we've gotten away from that because there's, it takes so much work. And then I tried the spreadsheet thing, but I wasn't disciplined, disciplined enough to really spend the time mm-hmm. to go through that. So now basically what I do is um, I'll keep specific folders for specific deer. And I kind of have all the cameras. I label all my cameras. So they all have a number um, All my Onyx, you know, every pin is every trail camera pin is associated with a number. So I know exactly where those cameras are. And then I just write the camera basically in a notepad or my planner. Um, it's kind of scattered all over the place. I do have notes, but they're not always yeah. organized in one <laughs> centralized spot. Um, I'll write down the camera number, uh, the photo, the uh, file number of the photo or of, of the video. And I, I have that saved on my, on my phone and my computer. And then um, write down all the weather information that I possibly can using usually weather underground. Just go back and look at uh, what was going on that day in that area. 
Yeah, no, that, that, that helps. And it is hard, like with the spreadsheet thing. So like the only thing that I do now, cause I was doing it for a lot of deer and I couldn't keep up with it. Just the time standpoint with it. So now it's like come down to a couple deer and then I'll really log all that information in there. And one of the, one of the cool things that I've been, been doing recently is, um, so within uh, within the Spartan Forge app, I'm able to use the journaling feature there, and you can put down the date, and it pulls up the historical weather and everything that's associated with it, and has that right there with the the pin, and I'm able to go through all those notes within the app, so I can do that. It does the work kind of for me? I'm that's all sweet. for trying to find things to to help with that. So I'm I'm you know I'm kind of like you where I'm you know fine tuning some of of that you know I, the spreadsheet thing has worked it's just it is a freaking ton of work and uh to really go back and do that especially as i'm starting to run more and more cameras but i do i do keep i keep all my cameras labeled i actually have a spreadsheet with all the trail cameras i have um and their serial, serial numbers and i have then a, then a regular number to them so trail cam zero two three and then i have that when i mark it in my app when i'm putting it down and and have that and just so i have you know, a way to be able to bring it back. And when I label those folders, like you said, um, on my MacBook, so in, in the photos app there, I, I have everything labeled, um, by location. And then if I have a deer, I want, then I copy those photos into a deer folder and it's just, it's yeah, kind of, it's kind of a mess, but it's, it makes sense to me, you know? Right. Um, I have a question for you. So, I mean, obviously you interview a ton of whitetail guys, um, a lot of really successful guys. Do you find that the successful guys are really meticulous about the details. Yes. Yeah, I do. I find that I, I find they all have their own, their own little method of remembering the details or going through them. But I, I hundred percent feel like they have, they all have some, you know, something or some things that they're very detail oriented about. And w- what about you? Do you find that from interviewing those types of people? Yeah. Yeah. We see the same thing. And it's, again, it's from guy to guy, it's usually something different, but it's like they have this system created and they have conviction in their system, but there's like two or three things that really have the most weight inside of, inside of their system. And like, those are the things that they're just like freaks about. Yeah. Um, but it, yeah, I, we see that across the board. These guys are really meticulous about the details that they have conviction in. You know, it, it, it was just recently I was over at my dad's house and I was looking at, he's got, he's got books and books and logs. He's been writing for years of, he writes down every hunt and even some, I think even some of the scouting sessions in there and he has dates and he just fills up log books and he'll go back and review them and then go to his computer where he has his trail camera photos and go back and look at that. And then he has like weather underground pulled up and kind of going but his detail is like writing that down in the logbook which triggers him to go back and do a few other things you know on his computer and looking at the trail cams and and the weather data that's associated with it and when okay all right this scrape was super hot you know at this point last year from October 23rd to the 31st there was six different uh daylight encounters with mature deer that came something along those lines. And, uh, and I feel like everybody's got something a little bit different, but they have some sort of system or something that they, like you said, they, they, uh, they weigh a little bit higher than, than something else. 
Yeah. That was a hell of a deer your dad killed, man. What a, what an incredible freaking animal that was. Yeah. It it really was. Getting to be there with him and walk up on it was just like just something stupid. Uh and <laughs> it was just yeah, it was crazy because like he was just hunting it for so many days straight and he's just getting frustrated and I was he he was at the point where he didn't even want to talk to me anymore because I was just like every day I was checking in on him like what's going on he's like and, you know he get I'm like you got to stay on him he's like basically don't tell me what to do you know sort of deal and he's like you know there's this other buck over here on this camera I checked this camera I'm like no you you need I know you can do like you can do this and he knew it too but like it was this back and forth of uh, things so when he finally made it happen on his last day to hunt it was just like this is and absolutely incredible <laughs> but that was annual annual data to its finest he basically that was six years of knowing where that deer wasn't <laughs> to uh to figure out where he was this year and i told you he um he had contacted me he's like hey when um i think you guys had the renders might have been out of stock or something for a little bit and you got the notification that they came back in stock and you ordered one and it came in and he got it set up and put it out like within a day or so and then that's when he first relocated that buck after the summer shift and that was like october 21st or 23rd or something and what ended up putting him on moving on to that deer so that was it was that's uh, incredible yeah it was that's a really good point though. I mean, if you're on a specific deer and your cameras, if he's not, if he's not there, like that's reason to go, go, go look other places, throw cameras out in other places and, and figure like, so he, just because you're not getting pictures of them doesn't always mean that the deer is not there, mm-hmm. but at the same point in time, like that's also telling you something that that's another, another piece of the puzzle. Per se. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it definitely doesn't mean that he's not there, but like once you start having a lot of data and stuff like you got to again use the odds and be like okay well maybe he's coming from somewhere else and i need to to move along and 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 use that i guess and yeah and ended up being with that deer that he was living in a very very small core area i mean throughout the entire rut he never left that area he just was always in these couple clear cuts and just bouncing back and forth and that's just Every deer has a little bit different personality, but it it takes learning that to be able to to understand it. Do yeah, hundred percent. Do you do you have any um, situations where you do check cameras pretty often? Like, so explain that a little bit. I know I saw a video. Um, I think Dan Infault put it out where you guys were scouting in a big woods area and you were going in and checking a bunch of cameras and, and, and doing that. So explain a little bit about when you do think camera checking cameras often is, is important. Um, anytime we have cameras, um, on, I'm going to say like less intrusive areas where we know that it's, you know, not in close proximity to bedding. Basically if we have cameras anywhere where we don't think we're going to hunt a deer, um, and we're on a very short time window, like if you're on a trip for seven days or something like out of state, you can still use cameras. They're still a powerful tool. Um, in that scenario, we will go in and check cameras. Like we're on a time crunch. The other, the other scenario would be during the rut. I mean, I think that we all realize how much more we can get away with during the rut. Um, we will check. I mean, if we're close to a camera, we don't necessarily go out of our way to check a camera during the rut, specifically in the big woods, because they're so kind of 
scattered, right? Yeah. I mean, you just can't go and check five cameras, six cameras in a day. You might have to walk 10 miles to do it. So it, from a time efficiency standpoint, it doesn't always make sense. But if we're close to a camera during the rut, we'll check it as many times as we're in there. Um, and we don't feel like, at least we don't feel like we're, we're screwing things up during the rut. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can, I can agree with that too. I feel like during the rut time frame, as I'm bouncing around and I'm scouting from the ground, my bow or still hunting or whatever, I'm, I'm, I might, I might look at that scouting and kind of use the cameras and move back and forth and hit those as I'm, as I'm going along and trying to get some real time data with that. Exactly. A lot of times even looking for does, you know, just trying to find where the does are hanging out. One of the things, um, we did in Wisconsin this year. So we went on a, on a short Wisconsin, uh, trip and hunted on a, on a military base is we used, we used the roads, like the vehicle roads. Um, anytime we saw a crossing or runway or anything that was within a hundred yards of the road where we saw deer sign, we would put a camera there because we could literally drive those roads in the afternoon, hop out and check. And if there was a picture of a deer, maybe he was on a food source or an Oak flat, or maybe he just crossed the road at 11 o'clock at night we know the direction that he came from. So then that's like, that gives us a starting point on those, on those short trips. That's uh Johnny Stewart does that a ton too. I don't know. Oh, okay. I don't know if you ever talked to him about it, but he loves, he loves doing that where he'll drive down roads and look for where they're crossing and he'll put cameras up right next to it. And a lot of times, a lot of these roads will even have like grasses along them. They might be feeding on it at night or whatever. And just to get that information on where they could be at, that's a, just a really good because a lot of times when you do run cameras way back in or whatever you can't can't get to them very often it's just not efficient right yeah and uh there, there was one other there was one other question i wanted to to ask you about um is, is there any uh, what about food okay so this is what i was going to say how much does food sources play a role in screwing with your annual data? I guess a lot, a <laughs> <Yeah>. lot, <laughs> a lot. So that's, that's one thing that kind of, um, there's some, con- some contingencies there with annual data, right? Yeah. Like there, the habitat has to be, um, it can't be a big change in habitat. There can't be a big change in food sources. There can't be a big change of, um, human activity. So, for the most part, like those variables need to be relatively consistent year to year for that stuff to really hold accurate. Um, and when the food changes, I mean, it, it throws everything out of whack. So, if, you know, if you're trying to focus on an acorn crop, whether it be white oaks or red oaks or whatever the case is, like if that area is not producing that year, the data is probably not going to line up. So those are the, mm-hmm. the questions you need to be asking yourself. The other big thing that we see, um, again, hunting a lot of big woods like yourself if there is a new cut or even a cut that was a year old within a mile of some of these spots, it shifts that movement. It'll shift. It'll, it'll pull those deer almost like a, I mean, I always say these clear cuts in the summertime are they're just like a giant bean field and that's the way we treat them for the most part. Um, so when that stuff pops up, we see it the second year, the third year, um, it's kind of where we see the biggest, I guess, drawing or pulling power is, is what we see in Southern Ohio. So if there's a, a cut in, you know, a two mile radius, like we need to be running cameras and have that on our mind. Like the deer are more than likely, again, if they're in a cut that's four years old or three years old and uh, we have cameras there and we've had, you know, two years of 
photos of them or two years of annual data, it might not be as drastic. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's something that we've had 100% notice in a lot of the older cuts. As those cuts get older, I think that they lose a little bit of their value. And when those younger cuts pop up in relatively close proximity, like those, those deer hundred percent will move. Yeah. I, I had that, I had that situation, um, this year actually with the deer I killed was because of a brand new cut last winter that went in and I, I got pictures of him entering and, or yeah, entering and leaving this cut. Probably I was probably about 400 yards off it on this trail, but this deer was using this trail and, uh, and that's where I ended up killing him in early season because I feel like a lot of those same patterns go from late season with those newer cuts to summer into the early, you know, into the early season and then being magnets and the new brows coming up and the tops being there and the grasses and all that other stuff. It's just, but, um, I, I, back to, we're talking about acorn crops that just that those, that's one thing that kind of pisses me off with like areas like, I go back and forth. There's a lot of areas I hunt that have no oaks at all. And that makes it super difficult outside the rut, but it makes it more consistent when there's not those mass crops and it's mostly browse, you know, that is, I can find the same scrapes and the same things year after year after year, you know, almost, I would almost bet decades old some of these scrapes being hit like the same thing where in areas that are just giant oak ridges and stuff that, that, I mean, those deer can shift miles or, you know, in some places that I'll have that are, you know, 1400 elevation gain from top to bottom, they might, if there's no oaks on the, or no acorns on the top that year, and it's, it's dropping beech nuts down on that lower third. I mean, they're down there. It's just, yeah, that sign that you found that data you had is just void that year. And it's just something you have to pay attention to. Yeah. hundred percent. You always can like constantly ask yourself why those deer are there. And make sure that variable is, you know, playing out in the year that you can hunt. And this is why we love deer hunting. Because it's just <laughs> always, <laughs> it, you just, you can't completely master it. <laughs> That's it, man. Unless you're Andy May. And then, then you just do what you want. Yeah, he's a beast. Don't. Yeah, he is. <laughs> oh, man. Well, Chad, it's, uh, it's getting late here. You're, you're getting ready to go to bed when I, uh, when I had called you. You forgot about the podcast and I texted you like, dude, good thing you texted me because I was just getting ready to jump into bed. Yeah. And, if, uh, uh, if you would have been two minutes later, I would have been sleeping. That's hilarious. <laughs> but anyways, man, thank you for coming on. I, I really do appreciate you jumping back on again and making the time to do that. No, it's busy with show season. So yeah, thank you. Absolutely, man. Anytime I always, uh, I always love chatting with you, Bo. You're a good dude, great hunter. Um, have an awesome, awesome thing going with uh, East meets West. So, anytime, uh, anytime I'm able to come on, man, I'm, I'm always, I'm always game. Awesome. So, where can where can people find um, everything with Exodus and what you guys got going on uh, now, and anything else you want to share on that front? Um, website is ExodusOutdoorGear.com, and then across all social platforms at Exodus Trail Cameras, you can find pretty much. Sooner or later, you'll find us in one of those spots. Yeah, definitely check out the the YouTube channel as well. It's um, full of good information there, and uh, it's it's worth clicking on that subscribe button and and checking out their stuff there. So, uh, awesome. Well, again, thanks, Chad. I'll probably be seeing you here shortly in Harrisburg. This will probably by the time this comes out, that'll be ended. But I'm looking forward to to getting to to see you again. It's been a while. 
Yeah, it'll be good. All right, we'll see ya. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of East Meets West Hunt with your host, Bo Martonic. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit eastmeetswesthunt.com, Facebook at East Meets West Outdoors, and Instagram at East Meets West Hunt. If you enjoyed today's episode, please review and subscribe, and we'll catch you next time.